Again, that's page 933, so if you've got a Bible, you can open it to Acts chapter 24, or the ones in front of you, if you don't own a Bible, please feel free to keep that, as we'd love for you to have this. Again, page 933, Acts 24. Let me pray, and then we'll consider this together. Father, we feel and confess our need for you, that you have to come by your Holy Spirit and help us me with the opening of my mouth, that it would speak all that you have for Christ faithfully, truly, effectively, and for all of us that we would hear and receive this. We even ask, O Lord, for the grace that we might not be like Felix in this passage, but that we might receive your word and respond to it. Come help us, we ask, by the power and help of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, we are in the closing section of the book of Acts, and it feels to some degree like we're almost in an episode of Law and Order or some courtroom drama because we're in this section where we're going to see the Apostle Paul in four different courtrooms, sitting before four different judges and juries, being tried now four different times. We saw this begin last week. If you're here with us, you remember that the Roman tribune whisked Paul away while he was about to be killed by a mob in Jerusalem. And then, wanting to know the facts about what was causing all the stir around Paul, he brought Paul the next day to the Sanhedrin. And if you remember last week in Acts 23, they almost tore him to pieces in that courtroom. And so he had to be whisked away again. And this time, while he's in prison, Jesus appears to him and promises him that he will testify about him in Rome like he's been doing in Jerusalem. And the next day, he wakes up to find out that 40 men, if you remember, are waiting to ambush Paul. They swear that they won't eat or drink until this man is dead. And it just so happened that a boy overhears the plot, and Paul is again whisked safely away, 470 soldiers to carry Paul safely to the governor's palace in Caesarea. And so when Acts 23 ends, Paul the prisoner has been moved from the city jail to the governor's mansion, awaiting trial from one Felix the governor. That's where we are in Acts 24. And when you look with me at Acts 24, one of the things that I want to suggest that you'll see is that there's a contrast in this passage between two men. There's the contrast between the one man who is in the orange jumpsuit with the shackles on his hands named Paul, and then with the man in the judicial black robes, the man in this passage named Felix, the judge. There's a contrast between the man in handcuffs and the man holding the gavel. Clearly in this passage, Paul is the prisoner. And at least in this scene, Felix is the judge. And yet here's what you'll see. In the chapter, it's Paul who is calm, even, quote, cheerful, whereas it's Felix who is uneasy, even, quote, alarmed. It's the prisoner, the defendant, who speaks out saying, my conscience is clean and clear, whereas it's the judge behind the bench whose conscience, you'll see, is calloused and condemned. Now, why is that? Well, to find out, we have to step into the courtroom with this passage. And so step with me into Acts 24, and as you see this trial unfold, you will see everything you expect to see in a trial, meaning you'll find there's a prosecution that presents a case. You'll find that there's a defense to be made, and you'll find that there's a ruling that's given. 
right? That's what you expect in any trial. That's what you'll find here. There's a prosecution. You'll see that in verses 1 through 9. There's a defense. You'll see that in 10 to 21. And there's a ruling, and you'll see that towards the end of the passage. So first, the prosecution. That begins, if you'll look with me, at verse 1 and following. And what you'll find in the courtroom is at the prosecutor's table, verse 1 tells us that seated are some chairs. And you'll find Ananias, the high priest, seated in one chair. And beside him are some of the chief rulers and elders of the Jewish people. But the leading chair is given to sort of a hired gun, the chief prosecutor, an orator with great skill. It's this lawyer named Tertullus. And when the court starts and the courtroom drama begins, Tertullus pulls out his chair, steps, and approaches the bench. And he's the one who begins the case with a, your honor. And you get that in verse 2. He starts speaking to Felix the governor, and he says, Since through you, Felix, we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you, in your kindness, to hear us briefly. Now, let me tell you what this sounds like in the original language. In the original language, this sounds like... That's what he just did. Felix just puckered up to kiss up and suck up and butter up Felix the judge. That's what Tertullus just did. I mean, the truth is, everybody who was Jewish in Israel hated Felix. One commentator says that he was barbaric in his brutality. Where Felix was, there was no peace. There was violence everywhere. Felix was hated. Nobody liked Felix. And yet, as the saying goes, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so if getting Paul meant for a moment befriending Rome, I mean, if it means they had to choke down these words, and you can imagine, as they came off Tertullus's mouth, as they fell on the Jewish high priest's ears, these were hard words to choke down. Since through you we enjoy so much peace. Yeah, right. Because of your foresight, most excellent Felix, and the reforms that you've made everywhere and anywhere, we accept all of this with gratitude. I mean, those were hard words to swallow, but... Swallow them they did because if it meant befriending Rome for a season to get their guide, they'd do it. After all, that same exact strategy worked about 27 years earlier. When there was a man named Jesus from Nazareth on trial, and if it meant befriending this governor named Pontius Pilate for just a moment, crying out, we have no king but Caesar, then so be it. It worked then, it'll work now. And so to Felix, the most horrific man there was, they come with these flowery words. And then in verse 5, Tertullus, this chief lawyer, brilliant orator, makes his case. 5, for we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world, speaking of Paul, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also, that's the high priest and the guys sitting in the chairs next to him, joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. Tertullus makes his case, and he pulls no punches. 
I mean, in fact, his opening line is, this man is a plague. I mean, literally, he's a pest. You think bubonic plague in a land, that's what Paul is in the empire. He's a pest, he's a cancer, he's a disease, he's a virus that's infiltrated our land. And what do you do with a cancer? What do you do with a disease? What do you do with a virus? You exterminate it, you eliminate it as this man needs to be. You almost want to be like, Tertullus, tell us what you really think about Paul. Because from the first words, this man is a plague. And then he continues, he stirs up riots among the Jews everywhere in the world. What did Tertullus just say? Felix, through you, we enjoy peace. That means this man is what? A direct threat to that peace. To the very peace that we enjoy because of you, Felix. This man stands as a living embodied threat to Pax Romana. The very peace that the Roman Empire so deeply wants and prides itself on. This man stands as a threat then to the very peace your job requires you to have. This man stirs up riots among the Jews everywhere and anywhere. Everywhere he goes. And moreover, he continues, he's a ringleader of this dangerous, seditious, revolutionary sect called the Nazarenes. See, they follow this man, Jesus of Nazareth. You can almost hear him say, you just have to look up the charges against him. Caesar didn't like him either. And now he's got a whole movement after him. And this man, Paul, is the ringleader of that sect, of the Nazarenes. Those troublemakers, those rioters everywhere. And moreover, he adds, he even tried to profane the temple. Now, Tertullus, being a skilled orator, cleverly leaves out how it was that Paul so-called profaned the temple. If you remember two chapters ago, he so-called profaned the temple because they thought he brought a Gentile in, a man named Trophimus, into the temple. Now, it's very convenient that Tertullus isn't going to make mention of the filthy Gentile when he's presenting a case to this Roman Gentile. You can almost imagine them as they were prepping the case, sort of ixnay the entile J in the, in the temple. We don't, we don't want to mention that. Just say that he profaned the temple. Now, essentially, here's the charges. If you were to summarize it all, this plague, this pest, this cancer named Paul, he is a threat to Rome and a threat to Judaism. That's who he is. He's a threat to Rome. He disturbs the peace that we have because of you, most excellent Felix. And he's desecrated the temple. He's a threat to Jerusalem and a threat to Rome. He's a threat to Caesar and a threat to Judaism. Now, if any of that sounds even vaguely familiar, that's because the author of volume two, Luke, who's writing the book of Acts, wants his closing chapters to remind you of the closing chapters of volume one. Because when volume one was ending, there was another man named Jesus of Nazareth on trial in front of a Roman governor, accused by leaders and chief priests among the Jews. And what were the charges brought up against one Jesus of Nazareth? The charges were, this man is telling us not to pay taxes to Caesar. In fact, he's claiming to be a king, and we have no king but Caesar. He is a threat to Rome. And moreover, this man said he would destroy the temple and in three days build it up again. He is a threat to Judaism. You see, Luke is writing in such a way that you're supposed to see the shadow of Jesus Christ looming behind Paul. That essentially, Paul's life in following Jesus 
is now mirroring his Savior so much so that his narrative itself is unfolding like Jesus'. And, and essentially what you begin to see is this then isn't about Paul. This, as always, is about Jesus. It's Jesus who's again on trial. It's Jesus' gospel that's again on trial. It's because of Jesus that Paul is hated. You see the shadow of Jesus looming behind Paul's trial. And you hear and remember that Jesus warned it would be so. In fact, Jesus said in John 15, words that Paul would have known, words that you and I should know. Jesus said to his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. That's what Jesus promised, promised all his disciples, and what's being played out in Paul's life. Here's an innocent man suffering for Jesus, and essentially the charges come down to this. He's a threat to Rome, and he's a threat to Judaism. And with that, the prosecution almost says, we rest our case. And now you're going to get, in verse 10 and following, the governor is going to nod to Paul so that Paul can offer rebuttal. So that Paul can make his defense. And that's exactly what you see. Look at verse 10 with me. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. Paul starts his defense, and he says, Governor, listen, I cheerfully, gladly make my defense. Governor, you can verify for yourself that it wasn't more than 12 days ago that I went up to Jerusalem, and you can tell that there is no proof of anything that they're charging against me. I didn't cause a disturbance in the temple, not in the synagogue, not in the city. I didn't cause any trouble anywhere or everywhere. In fact, none of these things they're saying about me have one shred of proof. And then he turns in 14, and he says, but I will confess. And you can almost imagine everyone in the courtroom leans in. Paul's about to confess. But what you'll see is he's not going to make a confession of guilt. It's going to be a confession of faith. This is what I'll confess to, verse 14. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Paul starts, and making his defense, he finds a way to turn this to make a confession, not of guilt, but of faith. And he says, here's what I'll confess to you. Here's what I am guilty of. I am a member of the way. Now remember, way in Acts is what you called Christianity in the beginning. It's the way of Jesus, the way they believed to salvation, the way to God, the way of life. The way of Jesus was the way. And so they were followers of the way. And he says, I do belong to the way. But the way is not some sect, as they call it. This isn't some dangerous offshoot. This isn't some radical movement. This isn't some dangerous sect. 
Instead, what does he say in 14? In reality, I worship the same God they worship. Meaning the Jewish accusers and I share the same God. The God of their fathers is my God as well. And moreover, I believe the same book that they believe. I hold as dear the scriptures they hold as dear. They've read the law and the prophets and believe everything in it, and so do I. And moreover, I have the same hope that they have. I have the same God that they have, the same book that they have, even the same hope that they have. They hope for the resurrection of the just and the unjust, that all humanity one day will rise from the dead and give an account before God for all their life. That's their hope and mine as well. You hear what Paul's saying? This isn't some offshoot sect. This isn't some dangerous new innovation. I have the same God that they have. I have the same book that they have. I have the same hope that they have. You know why? Because the way Christianity is not a sect, it's the fulfillment of Jewish faith. It's what the fathers of the faith were hoping for, what the law had written about, what the, prophesies had pro- what the prophets had prophesied and promised. I am in every way carrying on in the very path and stream that they started in. You see, calling Christianity a sect Cutting it off is like cutting off a tree because it looks different than the seed that you put in the ground. And what grew out of the seed of Judaism was Christianity. It's not this hybrid sect. It's not this offshoot. It's not this dangerous new innovation. It's the fulfillment of the first half of the Bible. It's everything that the law was getting you ready for, everything that the prophets were prophesying about, everything that our fathers had hoped in, the resurrection we long for, all of it was found in Jesus. All of its fulfillment was found in Jesus. See, this isn't a new thing. It's the fulfillment of a very old thing. Paul is in essence saying, if anything, Felix, I'm in trouble today for being a very faithful Jew. That's what I'm in trouble for. And that's why in 16, he can say, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Luke wants the reader to know Christianity is not a threat to society. Faith in Jesus doesn't pose a threat to society. In fact, if you've read Luke's volume, you would know that Paul was once a threat. He was once a cancer, a virus, a pest, a disease infiltrating the land. He was once a hunter, a predator, and merciless, but that's before he met Jesus. And then he encountered Jesus, and this man with a condemned and cloudy and calloused conscience was cleansed so that now he could stand on trial calmly, cheerfully, with a clean and clear conscience, make his defense. I take great pains to have a clear conscience with God and with man. He goes on in verse 17 to say, Felix, in fact, the truth is, the only reason I was even in Jerusalem is I had come here after many years to bring alms to the people. Rather than being a troublemaker of Israel, I literally came here because the Jewish people had a famine breakout, and I've come with relief. I haven't come to trouble the land. I've come to help the land, heal the land. And moreover, they found me in the temple, not desecrating, but purified with offerings to worship. He says in 18, in fact, the trouble started because some Jews who were hunting me from Asia, and he almost gets caught up in verse 19 by saying, in fact, where are they? 
They should be here. They're the chief witnesses about this so-called crime that I've committed. And you think of that as a trial. You see, Roman law was like our law. You couldn't mail in charges against someone. You had to accuse them face to face. And in Roman law, to bring about charges and then to not show up and to abandon those charges was a really weighty thing. And so he says, where are my so-called accusers, the witnesses who saw me make trouble in the temple? Those Jews aren't here. And in fact, the Jews who are here, sitting behind the prosecutor's bench, ask them. They held a trial for me in Acts 23 just a few days ago. I was in front of the Sanhedrin and they literally said, we find nothing wrong with this man. I mean, you think of this, brothers and sisters. Paul is saying, the tribune sent him here to Caesarea with a letter that literally said, I don't know what this guy did. Everyone wants to kill him, but there's no charges. The Sanhedrin held a case, the outcome of which we find nothing wrong with this man. Now Tertullus has presented a case. He's got no charges, no crime, no evidence, no proof, not even a witness. I I mean, you think of that. There's no charges, no crime, no evidence, no proof, not even a witness. I mean, that's the case against Paul. You're expecting now, this is like Tom Cruise has just said, you can't handle the truth, and so you're expecting this case is done. What you expect now is Tertullus to approach the bench and say, Your Honor, the prosecution drops all charges. Or you're expecting Felix to pound the gavel and say, I've heard enough. The defendant is innocent. You are free to go. But you get neither. You get a ruling, but it's neither. Because now you've heard the prosecution's case and you've heard Paul's defense and now you get in verse 22 a ruling. Here's what it says. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he, that's Paul, should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. You know what you just read? Felix punts. That's what he does. He takes the case and he punts it downfield. He delays. He prolongs. He tarries. He procrastinates. And as the saying goes, by delaying justice, he in effect denies justice. He can't condemn Paul. Paul is a Roman citizen, and clearly there's no charges against him. There's no case against him. There's no evidence, and there's no eyewitnesses. So he can't condemn the man. But he also, in order to appease this political constituency of the Jews, can't let the man go. And in fact, that's what the last verse says. In 27, it says, And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Indeed, he does. For two years, he punts this case downfield so that two years pass with Paul in that prison cell with no charges against him, no crime, no evidence, no witnesses. He just tarries. He delays. He procrastinates. He prolongs. So much so that when two years' time passes, he's eventually succeeded by a man named Festus, and Festus has to dig up charges to go, why do we have this guy in jail again? And he has to start the whole thing all over again. Two years pass. And in the course of those two years, Paul gets undoubtedly many different visitors. But perhaps most odd of all, 
One of the sets of visitors he gets is Felix and his wife, Drusilla. Look with me at 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Catch this contrast with me, Sabmarod. Paul's the one in the orange jumpsuit, in shackles, but he is calm and his conscience is clean and clear. Felix is the one who is free, the one with all the power. But did you catch in the passage? He's uneasy, unsettled, a bit jittery. In fact, the text literally says he's alarmed when Paul speaks. Why is he so fidgety? Why is he so uneasy, unsettled? See, some, some background will help. There's a historian named Josephus. He's not a Christian outside the Bible. It's a wonderful reminder to us. These things aren't legends or tales. I mean, a historian named Josephus wrote about a man named Marcus Felix and about his wife, Drusilla. And Josephus gives us some background that's helpful. For example, Josephus says that Drusilla was known in that day as a very beautiful woman. In fact, Felix, after two failed marriages of his own, meets, seduces, and convinces Drusilla to leave her husband and come be with him. And that's exactly what happens. And the background on this Jewish woman named Drusilla is this. We actually meet some members of her family. In the next chapter, you're going to meet a man named King Agrippa. And it turns out that he is her brother. And in fact, in the next chapter, Paul's going to stand in front of King Agrippa and just like here, won't get justice from him either. But not only do we meet her brother, we've actually already met her father in volume two. We met him back in Acts chapter 12. You see, her father was a king named Herod. In fact, the very man who beheaded Jesus' apostle named James. The very man who in chapter 12 had put Peter in prison. The very man who rode in with great pomp and glory, boasted in himself. People called him a god and he didn't deny it. And he was struck down that moment and in Acts 12 was eaten by worms. That's Drusilla's dad. But not only have we met her brother, and not only have we met her dad, we've actually even met her granduncle. In fact, that's back in volume one. It was a man named Herod, before whom a man named John the Baptist stood. And John the Baptist would visit with him. In fact, that Herod would visit him in prison, hear what he had to say, and that John also spoke out about that Herod's illegal or improper marriage where he had stolen another man's wife. And, and in fact, Listened to him until the wife convinced him to cut John's head off. And so that Herod beheads John the Baptist. And in fact, is the same Herod that Jesus of Nazareth would stand before in trial. We've not only met her brother, and not only met her father or her granduncle, we've even met her great-grandfather. In fact, he appears in volume one. He's the Herod who, when some wise men from the east came and announced that there was, in 2 AD, a new king in his paranoia, ordered that all the boys in Bethlehem, two and under, should be murdered. That's the woman Paul is standing in front of. A woman whose entire background and legacy has been committed to the extermination and elimination of Jesus and Christianity from the hour it was born. 
And now Paul's standing in front of her. And what, Seven Mile Road, does Paul do? He offers her Jesus. He presents to Drusilla Jesus. That's what the text says in verse 25. He spoke to them about faith in Jesus Christ. This woman, this woman was offered by the Apostle Paul, Jesus Christ. You know why? Because despite her past, Paul knew very well, if you looked into his own past, it would be just like Drusilla's. Every bit as committed to the extermination and elimination of Jesus and Christianity from the hour of its birth. But Jesus Christ had cleansed and cleared his guilty soul, had washed away all his past and his sins, and given him now a clean and clear conscience, so that that is exactly what he offers Drusilla. In fact, what, what's Drusilla's past and Paul's past is my past and yours as well. Because if you look back, you will see a trail of sin. And you'll see brokenness in your sexual relationships and brokenness in your relationships. And moreover, you'll find skeletons you hate hanging in your closet. And to us all is offered cleansing, freedom from guilt, a clean and clear conscience through Jesus Christ. He presents to Drusilla and three times married Felix cleansing, clean conscience, a new start, a new opportunity in Jesus Christ. He offers him faith in Christ. In fact, so much so, verse 25 says, and he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, and Felix was alarmed. Now think of that. No wonder Felix was alarmed. I mean, if Paul is standing in front of this violent man, this immoral man, and his adulterous wife, and speaking to them about righteousness which they haven't been, or self-control, which they haven't had, or about the coming judgment, which they're in danger of. Of course they're going to shift in their seat. Of course they're going to be uneasy. Of course Felix will be alarmed. But I want to say, like this one commentator named John Stott says, I don't think that Paul was only preaching condemnation. I don't think righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment were just condemnation. I think through it, he presented to them the gospel. Why? He, he's summarizing his conversation over visits. And what does he present to them? He presents to them righteousness. What's righteousness? How do any of us who are not righteous get righteousness? The biblical big word for this is justification. What's justification? It's the means by which us who did not have righteousness become righteous. How does anyone become righteous? It's not because we polish off our, our resumes and present them better to God. Righteousness, justification is what? Justification is the biblical world that means that you and I were standing in orange jumpsuits in front of the throne of God the judge. And just when the gavel should have come down in condemnation on us, Jesus stands in an orange jumpsuit in front of us. And all the guilt of our crimes are transferred onto him. And he hears the pronouncement guilty so that now the judge of heaven can look to us and say the most unbelievable thing, that the gavel comes down and we're declared not guilty. And more than that, 
declared righteous. That's what justification is. It's God declaring us who are guilty righteous in Christ. Not because of our resumes, but because he stood in our place and took our sins. He presents righteousness to him, justification to him, the cleansing of all guilt, the cleaning of your conscience. This is what's offered. I read this week of Martin Luther, the great reformer. And it said that Martin Luther always battled the devil and always battled his accusations. It said that he literally threw an inkwell once at the wall in his attempt to strike the devil. That's how near the accuser always felt. And one night, Luther had a dream. And in this dream, Satan is standing like Tertullus was as the chief prosecutor against him. And God is standing on his judgment seat on the throne. And Satan, like Tertullus, is bringing this case against Luther. And he opens the book of Luther's life. And he just begins reading. Line by line, one act after another, every single one sinking on Luther's conscience. Every single one weighing him down. Every single one condemning him deeper and further still. And here's the thing. Satan didn't lie about one thing. All the accusations were true. He was guilty as sin. Everything the devil was accusing him of, he had done. And so with every coming accusation, Luther sinks deeper and deeper and deeper down until he's done. And then Luther, in his dream, says to Satan, you have forgotten one line. And he says, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Isn't that justification? That's righteousness. That whatever Drusilla's past was, or Felix's past was, or Paul's past was, or my past was, or yours past was, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And those whom have been justified are given now cleansing, guilty consciences removed that can stand clean and clear. But he goes on. He doesn't just speak of righteousness. Those whom God has justified, the Bible says another big word, he sanctifies. And what's sanctification? Sanctification is the very sins that once held you under its power. Now suddenly lose its power over you. When we were worshiping together, Andrea read for us Romans 6. And what were we reminded? That now we are not under the law but under grace and sin has no dominion over us. Meaning what? You who could never utter no to sin suddenly have been given power to say no. The, the grace of God has appeared, Titus says, giving us power to say no to ungodliness. That which held me, which I was imprisoned to, which I had no power to, suddenly I have this measure of self-control. Isn't that what he presented? He met with Felix and he presented righteousness and self-control. That's what God does. Those whom he justifies, he sanctifies. He gives you a measure of power so that you find yourself now gaining a measure of mastery over that which mastered you. Now having an ability to have self-control. And those, the Bible says, whom God justifies, he also sanctifies. And those whom he sanctifies, the Bible promises, he will glorify. And what's glorification? That you will escape the coming judgment. Is that not what he presented to Felix? He spoke to him of righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. And yes, 
Felix had broken them all and was danger of them. But here's the good news. For those whom have been justified and are being sanctified, you will be glorified. You will escape the wrath of God. I mean, you think of this. We weak Christians, the weakest of us who believe in Jesus Christ, are not afraid of judgment. You think of that. We're scared to death of a million different things. But we who believe in Jesus are not scared of the scariest thing in the entire universe. There is nothing scarier in the universe than falling into the hands of a dreadful and awful and holy God and his awful judgments. And yet the weakest Christian looks ahead to the coming judgment and does not panic in their soul. What gives weak ones like us that kind of courage? It's not from us. It's not because we've polished off our resumes. It's because we believe in justification. It's because we believe in Jesus who stood in the orange jumpsuit in front of us and took the crimes for us and the punishment for us so that now we think of the dreadful judgment of God and we're not panicked in our souls if we are in Christ. He presented to them Christ, righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. That's what he offered Felix and Drusilla. But Samarod, let me end with this. What a cautionary tale Felix is for us. What a word of sober warning the story of Felix is for us. Because after he presents faith in Jesus Christ and speaks to him of righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, what does Felix say? He says, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. What does he do? He punts. He delays. He tarries. He prolongs. He procrastinates. He says, you know what? For now, I can't bear to hear this anymore. I'll come back to this another time. And I'll invite you back another time. And he does. In fact, over the course of two years, he will invite Paul back many times. But he who had not heard God's prompting that day became more and more and more closed so that every encounter mattered less and less to him about the case of his soul. And the text says he visited with Paul hoping to get a bribe out of him, hoping in these encounters to get some money out of him. See, rather rather than running to the mercy of Jesus that was offered that day to him, he punted, he tarried, he delayed, he prolonged. And history tells us that over the course of those two years, and if history is right, nothing changed in his heart. In fact, Josephus will record that he gets in a lot of trouble with Nero for his violence and eventually is replaced two years later, as Luke says here, with a man named Festus. And he's a caution to us of the danger of not heeding to your conscience. Sema wrote, he presents to us the danger of silencing the voice of God that keeps pricking at your conscience, that keeps prodding you. You think of this, Drusilla was a Jewish girl. How many times had she heard the law in her life or heard the prophet spoken? I mean, how many times did she brush it aside to come back to it some other time before there was no other time? You, you wonder, how many times 
The Bible warns of a seared conscience. It's seared. It's, it's pressed up against an iron so that the nerve endings lose its feeling. I mean, it's, it's like frostbite. Frostbite starts at the surface of your skin, but exposed to the cold long enough, it moves its way down so that the tissue underneath dies. And how long will there be a cold frost on your heart and mine before the coldness sinks down and our hearts become ice and the gospel penetrates no more? How long will we close our ears before we become deaf to anything God has to say? How long will we close our eyes to the things he has till we become blind, unable to see? How long will we push them aside till we become numb to these things and dead to these things? How long will sin grow in the darkness till the darkness consumes us and we don't step anymore into the searing light of God or his truth or his community? Here's the word to you today. This is why the Bible says to you, today is the day of salvation. Now is the appointed time. Do not tarry. Do not procrastinate. Do not delay. Don't punt on the mercy of Jesus offered to you today. Because if your heart is hard today, what leads you to believe that when you summon it back some other day, it'll suddenly become soft? It didn't happen for Felix. And so the warning to us is, let every guilty conscience, every condemned man or woman, fly today to the throne of Jesus and find mercy. Come running today to his offer of pardon. In a moment, we're going to sing, come ye sinners. Sing that with all your soul, come like sinners. In it is a line, if you tarry until you're better, you will never come at all. So today, as the psalmist says, if you hear his voice today, do not harden your hearts like our fathers did. Because now is the appointed time. And here is the offer of mercy and salvation. Oh, that God would give you ears to hear it and eyes to see it and a heart to respond it. Let's pray together. As we come now to pray, I want to encourage you if the Spirit of God is convicting any area of your life, then confess. Bring that area to light, to God if needed, to others, but don't remain in the darkness. Don't brush off the proddings of his Holy Spirit. God, we pray that your Holy Spirit might save us from the evil one who comes like a bird and snatches the word before it has time to take root. We pray that you would protect us from his deception and his lies. And we pray instead that the Holy Spirit might shine light on us and move our hearts so that we who are guilty and condemned with calloused and clouded conscience today might be cleansed, clean and clear in Jesus Christ. We pray that you would pour out your shed blood again in cleansing over our souls and that we might be white as snow. We pray that you would agitate so deeply in our hearts that we couldn't live in known sin. Come do this and more, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.